it's like Thanksgiving already. Time flies when you're listening to <laughs> whale song. I'm not, I can't, I'm... Squeaking that then comes in. You like the squeaky part, huh? That's or that's yeah. the seagulls, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either that or it's the it's the slasher in in Hitchcock's Psycho. And then you could play along with your. You really play this. <laughs> Yeah, hello. And welcome to the Kate and Vince Kelso podcast. This are we is, definitely uh, recording? We're recording. Check for me. Yes, we are. We are uh, We are recording. This is episode eight of the Kate and Vince Kelso podcast. I'm Kate Skelso, and that's Vin. And I'm Vin. No. 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 Oh, we're getting a little silly. A little silly. Well, um, it is Thanksgiving. It's right. the holiday season. It's <laughs> upon us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will, I mentioned it the last podcast at the end, and I'm just going to mention it real quick at the beginning, that um, I'm doing a giveaway on my website. Oh, yeah. This is so cool. KateSkelsa.com. If you sign up for my mailing list, which you can do just on the homepage there on my website, uh, if you sign up in the month of November, you are entered for a giveaway and you will win an annotated version of my book, Fans of the Impossible Life with little secret messages from me written in it, and also a uh, Fans of the Impossible Life charm bracelet made by me that was a uh, party favor at my book party. So you're going to actually handwrite notes, sort of like the, mm -hmm. the author's, the author's uh, commentary mm -hmm. on the book. Yeah. That is so cool. And the Did, hardcover. Is that something that... that Authors do? I've seen you? some other people do yeah. it, yeah, as a, and I thought it was a cool giveaway. Yeah, really. So if you sign up for my mailing list in the month of November at katescalsa.com, you will be entered to win. And also you'll get my newsletter, which I promise will be only very cool and entertaining, uh, probably around monthly things. Uh, so yeah, so sign up. For that. And don't forget to buy a copy of uh, Fans of the Impossible Life and give it to uh, uh, a sensitive uh, young person yes. in your life it for does the holidays. Make a good, it does make actually a good holiday gift, especially. Well, I mean, all my adult friends who even haven't read YA before are like, wait, I'm enjoying this. Mm. So it's definitely, <laughs> if you're an adult, if you have been a teenager, you can enjoy this book. And if you are currently a teenager, it is definitely also for you. So if you have a cool teen in your life, you will be the cool parent or aunt or uncle. I promise mm -hmm. if you give this. I'm not just saying that because I wrote it. No, it's, she's saying it's it because cool it's true. It's cool. It's it's definitely a beautiful book. It's uh, <laughs> well written and touching and funny and and uh, it's uh, it's on its way to becoming a classic in the genre. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes, two and a half months into the publishing experience, it's a classic in the genre. Thank you. We have something very special. For this, yes, speaking uh, of classics in mm. their genre, well, our last uh, episode of the podcast 
we covered a lot of things, and one of them was a period in your life when you turned to a certain author for solace in a moment <laughs> of crisis. Yeah, he was... got me through a period, that, oh. that strange period back in 1970 when I was, um, for a couple of weeks, I was a language arts, a language arts teacher at uh, the Bender Academy in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh, private Catholic primary school. Did you go on a bender at the Bender Academy? I went on a Kurt Vonnegut bender. Kurt Vonnegut bender. Because uh, in the previous year, Kurt hit the, the 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 big time in terms of becoming a popular name author. He had been known up until that point um, amongst a certain you know aficionado group of of readers. Um, mostly people who dealt in sci-fi and fantasy and things like that. That's where he sort of first made his mark. Right. But in 69, he published Slaughterhouse-Five, and that became one of the books that we look back on now and we mark the period with that book, with with that, and uh, a few years earlier with Joe Heller's Catch-22. Those are, you know, two of the great countercultural books of that period. And uh, I was lucky enough later in my career in the 90s to have both Kurt Vonnegut and Joseph Heller at different times mm -hmm. on the show two of the people who were literally um, key elements in my formation as a young adult back in the, the 1960s. I had Vonnegut on the air in 1996 on WNEW-FM. It was the second time around that I was at WNEW-FM on Sunday nights. And it was when a film... It was actually in November. Mm -hmm. It was uh, November 3rd, uh, 96. So it was right around this time of year. There was a film version of an early novel of his called Mother Night. The film version was just coming out. It, it never received a real wide release, um, but it was opening in New York. And uh, uh, he was also in the process of beginning to mention the fact that he was going to publish a, a first new work um, a few months after that, that when we talked about that as well. But mostly what we talk about is the film. And I actually had a, a, a surprise for him, unbeknownst to him, one of the actors from the film, um, our friend, yours and mine, Kate Frankie Faison. Um, uh, we, we were actually working with Frankie, in yep. uh, in uh, Shakespeare's Scottish play yes. um, that fall, and uh, uh, at Luna Stage at Company, Luna, which yeah. was in Montclair back then, right? And uh, Frankie had a part in in Mother in Mother Night, mm -hmm. and uh, I invited Frankie to come up because yeah. she was like, "You're gonna have Kurt Vonnegut on your show tonight," you know, because he hadn't know. met him. No, that no, they never met. They uh, and Vonnegut makes an appearance in the movie actually, but right. not in any scene that uh, that Frankie was in. And people might know Frankie from The Wire. That's been his. He was the commissioner. Yeah, on The Wire. He's a he's all over the place. He's in the lot. And he was in, um, I think, all but one of the. 
of the the Hannibal Lecter films. Oh right, he was mm-hmm. Hannibal's nurse. I yeah. think. I think maybe he was in all the Hannibal Lecter films. Yes, because wasn't that a Jeopardy question? I think so. Yeah. I think that that was the time that Frankie got to be a Jeopardy question. Yeah. Was who is the actor who's been in all of the films? Yeah, yeah. We'll check that, but I think that's true. So I I surprised Kurt by inviting Frankie in about three quarters of the way through the conversation. So this, um, uh, I've, I've edited out some of the music that we played, but it, it, there were two key pieces of music that I played that night. We opened with a song by a band called Ambrosia called Nice, Nice, Very Nice, which is based on a Kurt Vonnegut piece, a Calypso from one of his early books, Cat's Cradle, and we talk about that. So I left a few seconds of that song in. And then later on, um, you'll hear uh, a couple of times a little excerpt from Bing Crosby's classic White Christmas because that plays a very important part in the film Mother Night. So with the um, uh, excise of uh, all the commercials... I got rid of them because uh, I I did my bit a couple of, a couple of shows ago with Towns Van Zandt where I left the commercials in, and I promised I wasn't going to do that every time. Well, those were more fun also because they were older. Yeah, they they went back to the seventies. So 70s. they were really yeah, a yeah. little bit yeah. like a it was more like history. Relic, right? Yeah. Um, so no commercials and uh, um, virtually all conversation with uh, a a gentle, funny, giving lovely man, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, who, um, of course, is no longer with us, but who um, talks about how lucky he was and is as a writer in that everything that he ever wrote was in print yeah. at this point in 96. And he says, and, and he he's confident that uh, all of it will remain in print long after he's gone. He will continue to speak to us that way, and so he will have a, uh, a life for a good long time after the the uh, the bones have uh, turned to dust. He was just a charming, lovely man, and I'm so thrilled that I got to spend time with him on the radio. And so we're going to play the entire visit mm-hmm. uh, as a kind of a gift to our podcast listeners, Kate and I, mm-hmm. and then we'll be back um, with our next edition, and we'll um, we'll get back to the evolution of my radio career with some stories from the early 70s in my PLJ days. Yes. Okay, so now we go back to November 3rd, 1996, WNEW-FM, I think my show was actually not called Idiot's Delight at that point. I think it was uh-huh. called Sunday Night, mm-hmm. Vin Skelce's Sunday Night. There was like a legal reason why I couldn't bring the name Idiot's Delight back with me from when I left K-Rock. So you might hear me say that. Uh, so without uh, any uh, further words from us, Gerd Vonnegut. So that's the way this particular edition 
of Sunday Night Begins. Actually, Chapter 2 of a Kurt Vonnegut Jr. novel entitled Cat's Cradle, which is entitled Chapter 2 is Nice Nice, Very Nice. If you find your life tangled up with somebody else's life for no logical reasons, writes Bokonin, that person may be a member of your caress. At another point in the books of Bokonin, he tells us man created the checkerboard, God created the caress. By that he means that a caress ignores national, institutional, occupational, familial, and class boundaries. It is as freeform as an amoeba. In his 53rd Calypso, Bokonin invites us to sing along with him, Oh, a sleeping drunkard up in Central Park, and a lion hunter in the jungle dark, and a Chinese dentist, and a British queen, all fit together in the same machine. Nice, nice, very nice, 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 very nice, 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 very nice. So many different people in the same device. It is my pleasure to welcome to the WNEW microphones, Kurt Vonnegut, Jr. Sir, good evening. Thank you. I finally got to make sure that I'm pronouncing Bakonin and Karras yes. <laughs> correctly after all of these years. <laughs> Cat's Cradle. And, of course, the, the musical version of it, which you sort of co-worked on with uh, those guys, was from a band back in the 70s called Ambrosia. Which is still very active, I'm happy to say. They are about to put out some new work, plus they are also um, issuing for the first time a lot of their old material on CD, and that's yeah. coming out very soon. How did that happen? How did you get connected with them? How did they come I, to you? Uh, we never actually met, and uh, uh, they simply wanted to take the lyrics from my novel, Cat's Cradle, and put them to music, and uh, I'm a hard person to deal with, so I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> they had to twist your arm, huh? Yes. Is that the story? No, I, w I was very flattered, yeah. and, and it's been uh, nothing but agreeable since. And after all these years, you guys still have n never actually met? No. Huh? Is I, uh, Jerry Garcia, the late Jerry Garcia, uh, bought the rights to uh, The Sirens of Titan, another novel of mine, and uh, we did meet. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, he didn't know whether to pass a joint to me or not. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, what did he do? <laughs> I, I, I said no, thank you. Uh -huh. as I thought the generation gap <clears throat> spoke well of both of us. Uh -huh. yeah. What was his plan for it? What did he want to do with it? He wanted to make. He liked the book, and he and he wanted to make a movie of it, and had it for years. And ever so often at a party, a guy would come up to me and say that he had just done a script. Uh, for Jerry Garcia, yeah. and so there's several skip, scripts kicking around, but uh, nothing was ever done, and and uh, when the great man died, uh, we bought Siren to Titan back from his estate. Uh -huh. and, and and do you have plans to do something with it? You think? Well, I would like somebody else uh, to do something with it. You know, yeah, I write yeah, books. Right, I don't make movies. Right, right. Kurt Vonnegut Jr., of course, is the author of, for those people who may need an introduction, and I don't think there are too many people listening to this show on a Sunday night who need an introduction to him, but the author of um, such classic American novels as Player Piano and uh, um, Cat's Cradle, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, Welcome to the Monkey House, Slaughterhouse Five, Breakfast of Champions, Slapstick, Jailbird, Dead-Eye Dick, Bluebeard, and uh, Hocus Pocus, and others. I guess I've probably left no, a That's about it. Um, and there's some collections in there as well, yes. including one of my favorites, Palm Sunday. Um, every year, for many years now, since I'm always on the air on Sunday, I read the Palm Sunday sermon 
on the air, and it's sort of uh, one of the few actual religious observances that uh, that uh, what nobody I pay attention to. <coughs> no, no, uh, no clerical person objects to this, I guess. Uh, so far, no, yeah. nobody has said a word. Well, I, in fact, delivered it under the auspices at the invitation of the Episcopal Church. Yeah, at, at the uh, the Actors Church here yes. in New York years ago, and it became the title. Um, piece for that collection of uh, various essays yes. and autobiographical works. Kurt Vonnegut has not published a book and as far as as we know from all um, public pronouncements has not written anything since what 1990. Yeah, it's been a while ago and uh, well I've, I've lived much longer than most authors you know and as an actuarial matter uh, uh, American male authors have done their best work by the time they're 55. And uh, so after that is a uh, uh, right junk, really, as Mark Twain did this. Uh, and I I think we run out of luck. Is I when, when we're young, we're doing, th- wondering how the hell did I ever do this? I'm not this smart. And, mm. and uh, we are really, in touch with our intuition, and I think intuition probably dies about when we're 45 or so, and so we suddenly can't do it anymore, but you take Soroyan or Hemingway or Steinbeck, it's what they did in their 20s. My Lord, it was impossible. There's nobody is that talented, and uh, then it stops. You were older when when you first began to publish though right you weren't uh, i was about 29 yeah 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 had you written all along though had you written from teenage years yeah well i went to a whiz bang high school uh in indianapolis called shortridge high school and they had had a daily paper since 1906 and and, a daily paper in high school yes wow and uh so so writers have been coming out of there for a long time, and it no longer exists like a lot of other great things. Uh, but or Madeline Pugh, who was a head writer on the I Love Lucy show, was a classmate of mine at Shortridge, and wow. uh, uh, so yeah, I was really encouraged to write. And what was good too is that I wrote for peers instead of for a teacher. You know, is ordinarily yeah. you have to please one teacher who may be an enthusiast for. James Joyce or William James or whatever. And I wrote for my high school classmates, and they are mean. (laughs) 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 And if you don't please them, they let you know, and so forth. And and this is a wonderful learning experience, Mm. is to be disciplined by your audience right away. Now, were you working at that point as a, as a reporter for the paper, doing factual reports, or were you in well, write, we were, writing essays, or what? Well, we had editorials, and, and uh, we had sports, but uh, our news was all about the high school itself, mm-hmm. which was a big high school and an overachiever's high school. If anybody in Indianapolis who could get to Shortridge could go there. Mm-hmm. Now, the family, your family in Indianapolis, was in the hardware business, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, but... Uh, well, it, my family got there uh, <clears throat> before the Civil War and long before there was a uh, Statue of Liberty. And uh, they were from the north of Germany, and, and they came across the Erie Canal and, and then made their way finally to uh, 
uncleared land, a lot of it, in Indiana and started out as farmers. As one of them started a general store, and that became the Vonnegut Hardware Company. Mm. And that was my great-grandfather mm -hmm. who started that. But he had uh, four sons, and three of them loved the hardware business, and the other one wanted to be an artist. And Which the artist was my grandfather. The, the other, it was your grandfather. Yeah. yeah. And so my branch of the family was, was in the arts rather than in the hardware business. Mm. My father then, first my grandfather was an architect, then my father. I wish I'd been one. I'm sorry, I'm not one. Really? Yeah. Uh, Why, Kurt? What's uh, the appeal there? Well, we would have been the third generation architects in Indianapolis, uh -huh. and uh, there's a lot of stuff around town that my father did, my grandfather did, and it would have been fun to continue that. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, I'm a child of the Depression, and any way I could make a living was okay with me, and that I've said again and again during the Depression, when you got a job, there'd be a celebration, and about midnight, somebody'd ask what the job was. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I would have done anything for a living, and in, in fact, have from time to time. I was second or third sob dealer in the United States at one point. Really? Yeah. But uh, it turned out that writing. I, uh, was a way to make a better living than anything else I could do. Mm -hmm. My first duty always seemed to be to support a family. And that early writing that supported the family was very commercial writing. It was writing for um, well, was the for Pulp magazine. Well, right? not the Pulp. Well, the, si the, the science. Sl the Slicks. Well, oh, well, occasionally the Pulps, but uh, Collier's and the Saturday Evening Post published more of my stuff oh, than any other. Okay. And I would occasionally wind up in the pulps, in the science fiction magazines, when nobody else would publish a story. Mm. There was a, that was a, an age when there were lots of publications for short story writers oh, uh, to go yes. to. We don't have that anymore, do we? No, and what a, what a... Well, they say an automobile is the ideal teaching machine. It's, you really learn fast because the automobile is reacting all the time. And in the golden age of magazines, where this was a very important part of middle-class life is to subscribe to the Saturday Evening Post and Colliers and Life Magazine and so forth mm. before television. Uh, I mean, here I was, a middle-class person with a job with General Electric, as a public relations guy with General Electric and had retirement and uh, hospitalization and uh, guarantee of a job for life until I was 65 or whatever. And I quit because I could make so much more money as a short story writer. Mm. And I moved to Cape Cod. And uh, soon thereafter, his television uh, sucked all the advertising out of the magazines and they failed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but isn't that that's it's so interesting to say that you could actually make a living as a short story, oh, right? Yeah. Whereas today they have to go into, uh, uh, for the most part, the academic world in order yeah. to survive. But yeah. as I'm talking about a learning machine, mm -hmm. if you're supporting a family this way, is you know I would operate off my out of my mailbox. I would mail something off and then wait for something to come back, and if the story didn't sell, this was serious matters. What the hell was wrong with it? But the editor was so desperate for fiction to fill his magazine uh -huh. every week, yeah, five yeah. stories every week, 
he would tell you why he he thought maybe it didn't work and try this and try that and then you would learn and uh so it, it was delightful as long as it lasted until tv came along when you made that decision kurt vonnegut to uh to quit the job at general electric mm-hmm. to quit the the very nice cushy kind of future that you had there in terms of the economics and and supporting the family and all was it um was it like like uh, all of a sudden you know being out there without a net? I mean, w- you were making money, but wasn't there a fear as well that maybe this was the wrong decision? Well, it, again, in a sense, I had employers, but with uh, the magazines mm-hmm. who wanted me to keep sending them stuff, so it was in their interest to keep me going. And uh, so, no, I felt secure, and I had no idea that very quickly the golden age of magazines was going to stop. Yeah. Now, you never did anything with, with television at that point. As no, television came in and usurped, did you work? I did. Well, as the studios were in New York, the shows were live. And, yeah, I did several shows. And, and one of them uh, was for Sammy Davis Jr. And when his, when his, it was the first romantic party ever had. And, uh, and when he died, as part of his obituary, showed it, I was happy to see on TV, was a clip from that show. You wrote a teleplay? Yeah. For Sammy Davis Jr., or yeah. that he was in? Wow. Yeah. Well, no, what? but then what happened, again, is that the whole industry moved to the West Coast where where there were writers mm. who could turn out material in a hurry, and a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Kurt Vonnegut Jr. is my guest tonight here on WNEW on Sunday night. We're going to pause here for some commercial words, and um, then we'll discuss uh, an early... Uh, Kurt Vonnegut novel that has just been turned into uh, an absolutely extraordinary film. It's called Mother Night, and we'll talk about that right after this. Alright, now I know you think that um, something has slipped here on uh, Vince Gels' Sunday night, but no, in fact, it hasn't slipped. This is a, a very fitting introduction uh, to a discussion that we're going to have with Kurt Vonnegut right now about Mother Night because uh, Bing Crosby's recording of White Christmas figures um, in this novel and in this film as well. As a matter of fact, this is the very first sound that you hear when you watch the film adaptation of uh, Mother Night. And uh, we'll ask Kurt if he can tell us how it figures. What's the significance of well, this first recording? I'd, first, I'd like to say that the Irving Berlin estate is very careful about how White Christmas is used. And uh, Mary Ellen Barrett, who is Irving Berlin's daughter, is a friend. Uh-huh. And uh, she saw the script, and, and uh, it was Mary Ellen who said, good. She approved of the script, yeah. and, and so that's nice to know. Uh, the movie is different from my book, uh, just as medicine is different from law. Is there two separate activities, script writing and novel writing? And the guy who wrote the script is Robert Whitey, uh, who I believe won an Emmy when he was only 22 and making documentaries. Uh, but anyway, the idea of having uh, the movie begin with White Christmas uh, was his, not mine. Mm -hmm. And 
it's a gloomy scene. Is you realize that you are in Israel and uh, these military cars with uh, Star of David pennants hanging from the fenders and a sort of a paddy wagon uh, drive up to a prison, and Nick Nolte gets out and he's under heavy guard, and he is finally locked in a cell. We're in black and white. Yes. And um, yes, like, as you say, it is very gloomy. Yeah. Um, and the entire song plays for the entire two and a half minutes or whatever it is, yes. the opening of the film, as he's being brought into this prison in what, 1962, I think it flashes on the screen. 16, Probably. The something novel like was published in 1961, I think. Uh -huh. Yes, but anyway, this man is, is clearly a war criminal. Yeah. Uh, who was also a secret agent for the United States. But he, what inspired this story in the first place, this incidentally, Ben, is a paperback original which has never been reviewed and yet has been remained in print all these years. Well, I have the, the latest, I have my original paperback, yeah. um, which this isn't, and, and oh, I guess that's, this is one of the latest It's uh, a much, much editions. earlier yeah. one. But, uh, it, really, the book was never reviewed. Neither was Cat's Cradle, which is another book of mine. Neither was Sirens of Titan. These were all paperback originals. The magazines had gone out of business. I had a family. I needed money, and the mm. quickest way to get it was with a paperback original. Anyway, I was at a cocktail party on Cape Cod uh, in 1960 or so, and there was a guy there who had been a spy master during the Second World War. So I was talking to him about spies, and he said, you know, when you recruit an agent in an enemy country, you're dealing with a very sick person. It's quite possibly schizophrenic, and you have to understand that the only way he can survive is to serve the enemy as well as you. Hmm. And your hope is that you will get information from him that you wouldn't get otherwise. And so I imagine this American agent who uh, stays in Germany when we go to war and uh, out Nazis the Nazis in order to survive. Yeah. His name is Howard W. Campbell Jr. Yes. American born. Um, some of, some of his, his um, history, his geography uh, echoes Kurt Vonnegut's. Uh, his, he, he lives uh, in upstate New York. Yeah, well, his father worked for General, for General Electric Election. and uh, yeah. uh, International General Electric. Is, uh, surely had offices in Germany before the Second World War broke out. And so uh, young Howard, going to schools over there, became fluent in German, enthusiastic about German culture, and uh, fell in love with a German actress. Helga. Helga. And uh, so uh, an agent, John Goodman, who's wonderful in the yeah, movie, yeah. uh, uh, ta starts talking to him in the park and asks him if war comes, is to stay. Mm -hmm. Well, I've, I've excerpted some audio from the film soundtrack, mm -hmm. and um, I, I wanted to take the, the very beginning, after he is incarcerated in the prison, um, he is asked to write his memoirs, to write his story for the Haifa Institute, which mm -hmm. studies the mentality of, of war criminals. And so we see him in a, a beautifully photographed scene, uh, sitting down at this old typewriter, which we don't even see those kind of typewriters anymore because everybody writes on computer keyboards now. And 
the camera angle is actually from underneath the typewriter. So we're looking at him through the keys up as he begins to put his fingers down and begin to type. And he begins to type his story. So I thought I would just take the first minute or two of it. It is so seamlessly done that it is impossible to just take the first minute or two of it. So with your permission, I'm going to play um, the opening segment here, which sets up the whole story. All right. All right. Um, this is uh, Nick Nolte um, in what I think is perhaps the, the role of his lifetime, giving oh, the performance an extraordinary performance. Well, he, he worked for practically no money. So did Alan Arkin. So did Goodman because they liked the script yeah, so much. Yeah. This movie cost practically nothing to uh, make. Keith Gordon is the director. He's yes. a, a young director. He's and an actor the, as well. the seamlessness of which you speak is Keith. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people, I think, may get a little bit of that from just listening to the way this mm. sound flows. Um, we are beginning to, uh, to hear the story of Howard uh, Campbell's life. I was born in Schenectady, New York, on February the 16th, 1904. My father was raised in Tennessee, the son of a Baptist minister. He was a service engineer for General Electric. Because of his work, most of his reading consisted of trade journals and technical books. There were a few notable exceptions. In 1919, when General Electric relocated my father, we left Schenectady and moved to Berlin, Germany. By 1938, I had become a successful playwright in the German language, and I had married the young, beautiful, and famous German actress, Helga Nolte. When my parents left Germany, they asked me to return to the United States with them. I didn't. My dear, sweet Ava, this is the only way I know how to make good the frightful wrong which has befallen us. It does not matter what lies ahead for I have a full life behind me. All in those few sweet hours with you. I once told you that I would pledge my life for our nation of two and reside there, even in death. As surely as I reside in heaven, when your arms are around me. Soon it will be time to keep that pledge. And I rejoice to think that earthly distractions will no longer intrude on my eternal devotion to you. From this moment forward, our nation of two 
is the only country I will know. It is um, such a, a melancholy beauty, uh, this writing and this scene and, and the, way the, the way the film works, the way the camera moves, the way the, the music um, uh, accompanies everything seamlessly while, while all of this history is being given um, of, of Howard Campbell. And this, of course, is Helga. She's the actress, his wife. And the nation of two is what they create as a way of avoiding what's going on in the world. Is that, is that a creation of yours, the, 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 the German expression, which I... That's I, right, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I made it up. You sure. did, okay. Because it, it sounds uh, like something that's, that's existed forever. Well, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's often, I, often I plagiarize without realizing it. I don't think this time, no. Mm. It's, uh, it's how this character kind of justifies not getting involved in things and yet when when John Goodman when the agent shows up um, he offers him something very intriguing which has really nothing to do with politics he offers him the opportunity to create a role and he says as a playwright he says this is this is uh, perhaps uh, um, the greatest gift I could be given to create an extraordinary role and then play it for myself utterly convincingly with his life on the line is his what his father-in-law, who's the chief of police of Berlin, tells him as the war is ending, they hated it when his daughter married Camel, married an American, and would have loved nothing better than to have Camel detected as an American spy and shot. But he says that at the same time, I went on believing <laughs> in the Nazi ideals as long as I did because of you. Yeah. Yes, that's how how good a propagandist Howard Campbell was to, in order to survive. One of the, the differences, Kurt, between your original novel and this wonderful film adaptation, which is very faithful to the book. I mean, yes. I, I reread the book, which I haven't read since the early 70s. I reread the book over the last couple of weeks, and I was amazed to see that that fully, I would say 90, if not more, percent of, of the words in the film are, in fact, words from the novel. They are, they are your words. Um, perhaps they pop up in different places than they are in the, in the novel, but they're your words. I mean, it's a very faithful thing. But one of the things about Howard in the book is that he is, he's, he's always kind of removed from things. He's never really a sympathetic character. Um, whereas the way Nolte plays him in the film, even at his most um, vicious and, and, and cold-hearted, cynical evilness as this Nazi propagandist, as this Jew hater, as this Negro hater, as this baiter of, of all of this kind of bigotry. Um, you He's still... pretending to be all these things, yes. of course, in yes. order to survive. Right. <laughs> but, isn't, but, isn't there, but isn't there a question at some point as to when the pretense becomes something more than that? I mean, isn't that part of well, what the what I, the attraction of the I, story is? I th- I think I think it was terribly interesting to him to uh, get away with it and get away with it and get away with it because he was simultaneously useful as a spy, mm-hmm. is getting information out of Germany. Uh, but well, at one point in the book, he calls himself a ham, 
and actors, of course, are high as kites on stage. Uh-huh. They, and uh, he, he, he just couldn't believe he was getting away with it, getting away with it, getting away with it. And of course, that's what an actor does. Yeah. Is those people out there really believe I'm who I'm supposed to be uh-huh. here on stage? Tell how he's getting information out of. Uh, well, it's kind of a junky part of the story. Is uh, what do you mean, junky part of the story? Uh, I had well, he's he's delivering these uh, racist, this Aryan supremacist uh, baloney. He writes uh, on short wave every night, and uh, in the timing of his broadcasts pauses, clearing his throat, tapping a pencil on the desk in front of him, he is in fact sending signals out uh, to the allies, is transmitting information. And uh, I thought that was kind of junky, but I had to, I I wanted him on the air very much to uh, really be famously villainous, hated by... uh, Enormous numbers of people, and mm-hmm. correctly so, too. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know what information he's broadcasting. No, he's, he does these not. scripts have been given to Somebody him. is feeding him yeah. scripts that yeah. would indicate where he's to pause, <clears throat> where he's to cough, and so forth. Although, actually, he's writing, he's writing the scripts. They then doctor the yes. scripts to show when he's supposed Somebody. to do Somebody. He things. does not Somebody. know. Yeah. He does not yeah. know who his babysitter is, is yeah. the, the yeah. person who is doctoring his scripts. Yeah. Um, one of uh, one of the the most moving moments in the film, and I, and I don't want to give away too many things here, but there's a point where after the war is over, um, his his wife has died during mm-hmm. the war. She's gone off to entertain the troops. She's an actress. She's gone off to the Russian front, and it is reported that she has been killed there. Um, after the war is over, he meets up again with this agent who he calls his blue fairy godmother. This is John. Goodman, the John Goodman character, who has who has um, brought him into this whole spy game, and they meet again. And Goodman's got this wonderful line, which is your line from the book, which is it's something like, "Well, that was one hell of a war," or something something to that effect. Uh, you know, what'd you think of that? What'd you think of that war? That's the line. <laughs> well, yeah, what did you think of that war, Howard? <laughs> you know, and Goodman is just so good in the part. Yeah. Um, he finds out that in fact he broadcast the information of his wife's death, unbeknownst to him when he coughed or hiccuped or whatever yeah. during the course of, uh, of one of these speeches, and he's outraged. He says, you knew about it before I did? You know, I didn't find out till two days later? How could you have done that to me? Yeah. Well, he has been utterly used, but he, in fact, used up. And, uh, uh, but he's done it to himself he's voluntarily. Yeah, yeah. He becomes, uh, as you said, very famous because he's broadcasting on shortwave, so people hear him all over the world. Uh-huh. When the war is over, um, he, is, he is captured before the end of the war. He's captured by an American soldier, and he's brought to one of the death camps, and he's made to see the hanging of um, some of the, the people who ran the death yeah. camps. And this becomes a famous photograph that is published on the cover of uh, Life magazine. I think so. He's looking up at the gallows yeah. there, and there SS guys being hanged. Yeah. So this guy's enormously famous or infamous because yeah. he's a villain. He's a bad guy. And uh, eventually, he winds up in New York. Oh. The, uh, the U.S. government says they won't do anything for him. They, can't, they, oh. they, they, they deny his existence. They don't know anything about him, but they will get him to New York somehow. And he begins to live a very anonymous life here in New York in the, throughout the, the 1950s and into the early 60s. 
he befriends uh, uh, an artist, a painter who lives in the same building with him, who is uh, played by by uh, Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin in, in, in yeah. the film. And um, at a certain point, the blip hits the fan. This yeah. this secret existence of his. He he doesn't deny his name. He says he's Howard W. Campbell Jr. And every once in a while, somebody says well, there was a famous person back in World War II with that name. And he goes, Oh yeah, well I don't know anything about it. Yeah. You know, he just. There happens to be a Jewish doctor living in the building. Um, who was a child at Auschwitz, and his mother is there as well. And uh, she's very intrigued by the fact that he has the same name as this, this yeah. villain. The scene is beautifully acted, incidentally, between the, uh, the mother and the son. Anna Berger is uh, the, yeah. the woman who plays um, uh, the mother. And um, the son is played by the, the guy who used to be in, um, on Ellen. He used to be the, the roommate on Ellen. I forget his name now. Anyhow, yeah, it's, it's this wonderful scene because the son doesn't want to play that game anymore. The he's son, impatient with the yeah, past. He doesn't yeah. want to talk about Auschwitz anymore. And his mother is really can think of hardly anything else. Yeah, still. Yeah. So he gets, he's in New York and, and his identity is blown. Somehow the cover is blown. And he winds up um, uh, being written about by uh, a white supremacist, a Christian white supremacist group yeah. in their newsletter. And once that happens, of course, everybody then finds out. The local news here in New York finds out about him, and, and uh, the yeah. Israelis find out about him. But this this Christian white supremacist group is um, a very comical group. Can you tell why you took that tact with with them? Because now, yeah. all these years later, in the in the mid nineties, I don't think we would look at them as being so comical. They're sort of buffoonish. Because well, there was a time when they were buffoonish, and. Uh, uh, ridiculed, uh, and what? When I grew up in Indianapolis, as we, we had the silver shirts, for instance, William Dudley Pelly, and uh, these people did look like fools. And uh, uh, what makes them seem so dangerous now is the militia thing. Is they weren't they weren't heavily armed mm. back then, or in 1960 when I wrote this book. And they are armed to the teeth now, and it's quite scary. Yeah, yeah. You use the word ar- armed to the teeth. That phrase, the, uh, the, the leader of this group in Mother Night is, in fact, a dentist. Yes. Um, and, and one of his uh, theories about um, uh, the world is that you can judge people from the shape of their jawbone. Yes. Um, and he's actually written a, a book proving that Jesus was not a Jew because um, uh, in all of the... Uh, the paintings, the depictions of him over the yeah. centuries, there's never been a, a, a Jewish jawbone. He's always had a very Aryan jawbone. Yeah. And this, is, this is the guy who's the head of this group, <laughs> right, who wants to now make Howard W. Campbell uh, a hero uh, uh, in, instead of being yeah. vilified. It, it's interesting, though, when you raise the question, it is very 60s, and there were these splinter groups of neo-fascists and all that, and essentially buffoons, but what they said wasn't all that funny. But now it's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. But so much has changed since since those days. Yeah. From from when you um, first became uh, uh, a, a popular writer and a cult writer, does that bother you to think that there is that there that there are people who would use that well, that phrase cult? That's all right. Yeah. I guess it's it's all true. Is is it uh, lets critics off the hook? They don't have to take me uh. <laughs> take me seriously <laughs> or even read me. Uh, but uh, what my son Mark, who wrote a swell book himself, incidentally called the Eden Express, yes. uh, 
is a pediatrician outside Boston now, and he's, I think he's 48, 49 now, but he's a, a very good painter, watercolorist, and he had a show there outside of Boston, and the, uh, and a newspaper asked him, you know, what did, what did it feel like to grow up with a famous father? He said, as far as I knew, my father was a car dealer who couldn't get a job at the junior college. Uh, uh, on that note, Kurt Vonnegut, we'll pause for some commercial messages on WNEW. This is WNEW, New York. I'm Vin Skelsa. Sunday night is the name of the show. I'm real happy to have Kurt Vonnegut Jr. as my guest this evening. We're talking about um, a new film, which is an adaptation of an early Kurt Vonnegut novel called Mother Night. It is a film by Keith Gordon. Um, Ari Gross is the name of the actor I was trying to think of before. He plays Dr. Epstein, the young doctor who lives in the building. Um, and he was um, Adam on the, on the Ellen TV show. My, my daughter, we were watching the film um, at home on, on videotape, and uh, she immediately recognized him. He doesn't look anything like what he looked like on Ellen, but she goes, oh, that's the guy from Ellen. I said, oh, okay. I've seen it three times now on videotape, Kurt. Well, and, that's uh, more than I've seen it, but uh, I have seen it on the big screen. Yeah, I want, I want to see it on yeah. the big screen. I haven't had time yet. Uh, it is such a beautiful film. It is such a beautifully made film. And very cheaply, I have to say. You mentioned that earlier. Yeah. That's, a, that's sort of become almost a, you know, we have to talk about the economics of, of films these days. Yeah. Um, almost before we even talk about the aesthetics or the, the creative success of a film, we talk about, wow, did it cost, you know, $50 million or $6 million. You know, yeah. it's, it's become so important uh, to talk about that. Uh, it's unfortunate, you know, that that becomes well, uh, the it, story, you know. Money is terribly interesting these days, I must say. I guess, yeah. And, uh, no, but that, this thing came in for, for less than $4 million, right. and you can't even get an oldie for that little ordinarily. And But he and Goodman and Ark and all were so beguiled by the script because it gave them all opportunities to act mm, yeah. that they all came that aboard. They, yeah, the kind yeah. of opportunities that they don't get yeah. all that often. Uh, can you tell me how the, how the film version came about? Did, did Keith Gordon come to you? And, no, uh, it's, it's uh, Whitey, it's Bob Whitey who was the producer and the script writer, and, and long before Keith came on board, uh, Whitey had the script. And uh, he... I've known him for years. He's half my age, uh, but we're both interested in comedians, and uh, he was interested in me as a comedian. As, as I, I am pretty funny on the college circuit, and uh, so he started to do a documentary about my funny stuff, and uh, but he also very familiar with my work and, and had in mind, he said, since high school of making a movie of. Mother Night, which finally he did, as I think was, it became a series, it's been a serious project for him for really 10 years, mm. and finally it's come true. Mm. And the appeal for him, uh, aside from the fact that it's a wonderful story, did he have any other well, it, personal it, connection to the it, story? It, it, uh, no, I think he loves film, yeah. and as I say, I think he won an Emmy when he was 22 with a docu- mm -hmm. <laughs> With a documentary, and so, yeah, he's hooked on film, and he's had a, a very nice success now and has every reason to be proud of himself. Uh, how how we recruited Noldy, or how, how Noldy was recruited is interesting, is Keith Gordon, of course, is an actor, too. 
And uh, Keith and I, in fact, were in back to school with Rodney Dangerfield. It, Keith played Rodney's son in back to school. But anyway. You were in back, did you just say Keith and I? Meaning yes, you, you I were in back, back to, to school? school yeah. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Dangerfield had gone back to college. Right. Same college his son. And uh, he was asked, to, in his English course, he was asked to write an essay on my work. And so he just hires me. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> to write it. <laughs> and gets a flunk, incidentally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, anyway uh, Keith, as an actor, got into a movie with Noldy, tried out for a part, simply in order to hand Noldy the script. Wow. And, of course, people like Noldy are protected by their agents, the screening scripts as they come in. And Noldy was just so attracted by this opportunity to act. And, of course, Noldy had recently done Thomas Jefferson without being allowed to play the ambiguity in Thomas Jefferson's Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. outlook on the world. Yeah. Now, you make an appearance in the film as well. Yes, I do. Uh, uh, Right towards the very end of the film. It wasn't my idea. It was Whitey's and and Keith and Noldy. Finally, as uh, just can't think of any place else, anywhere to go anymore. He's simply frozen standing on a sidewalk uh, with people moving around him, ostensibly in Greenwich Village. And... uh, one of the people who walks by is me, yeah. and I look at him, and I, what I'm on camera, I guess for about three a, or four seconds. Yeah, not it, very long. Uh, it's an extraordinary scene. I didn't know it was coming. I didn't uh, know you were in the film, uh, and um, as the camera pulls back and we see the people on the sidewalk, I saw you from from the rear. Is how we first mm-hmm. see you, and and it's it's just an unmistakable physique. And I just went, "That's Vonnegut." And I and I had to stop the film at that point because I, I I just the first time I watched this movie I was so emotionally involved in it. All right. Uh, yeah. I mean to the to the point of 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 tears. You know. I just found the the movie so moving, so sad, and so beautiful um, that I stopped it. I said I said I can't stand this. Vonnegut's in this movie. And then I hit play again, and two or three seconds later, you are now facing the camera, and you give this character this look, this incredible deep-eyed look of of agelessness of just this 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 feeling of of all the pain and sorrow in the world you know is all is in your eyes there and it's just it just blows me away right. just blows <laughs> just blows me away Goodness. it's a, it's an extraordinary uh, extraordinary uh, what a success <laughs> <laughs> well now um in new york howard campbell meets up with these uh, christian right-wing guys who have as um, their sort of uh, chauffeur a black man yeah. who is called in the novel and in the film the Black Fuhrer of Harlem. Yes. And uh, he has a sort of a different agenda, um, uh, but, it, but it basically is, is ultimately the same right-wing kind of hatred agenda yes. as these other guys, except that he happens to be a black man. Yeah. Um, he's got this whole idea that... Uh, uh, what, that he wants the Japanese to get a hold of, of the atomic bomb and yes. drop it on somebody. 
Yes. And, uh, it, well, he regards the Japanese as, as persons of color and, and on his side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when, when, uh, when Campbell says, well, who, who are they going to drop it on? And uh, he suggests perhaps China. <laughs> and Campbell says, well, um, you know, aren't they people of color as well? And he says, oh, who told you Chinese were people of color? He gets very upset. About it. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a little bit of a surprise for you, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, because I, I have the Black Fuhrer of Harlem here tonight. Oh. <laughs> Frankie, face on. Frankie is, um, I told you earlier, he's coming in. I told you earlier, Kurt, yeah. that I'm appearing in a production of Macbeth yeah. in, uh, Hello, in New Jersey. Frankie. And uh, here's your Black Fuhrer. Yeah, I, Frankie, I face on. I'm worried about what your brothers might think. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. I don't show my face. Have I they just seen talk it? on radio. <laughs> Have any brothers seen no it? No one has said it? anything to me yet. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll give it time. Yeah. <laughs> So this man has gone from playing the Black Fuhrer of Harlem to uh, playing the Scottish King in, yes. in Shakespeare's play, playing right. Macbeth at Luna Stage over in Montclair, and he and I are acting together. That's how we've uh, kind of gotten to, to know each all other. Right. Well, I, I would, how long is it going to run? I'd like to see it. We have another uh, another three, three weeks. Oh, you're yeah. running right now. Weeks, yeah. yeah, we'd be very happy to have you come. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's an interesting question that uh, <laughs> that Kurt asked you, Frankie. Um, in, in some respects, even though the Black Fuhrer of Harlem is a, is a figure of, of a kind of doddering strength, he is also a sort of a cliche as well. I mean, he speaks in a, a kind of an Uncle Tomish kind of a way. Um, as, a, as, a, as a black actor, does that, does that present a problem for you, you know, that, that kind of a portrait? Well, not not really because of the time in which it was done and the characterization. And, you know, you say Uncle Tom, I think more of a colloquial kind of thing for that period in time. This this sort of individual, you know, because when I was first presented this script, I certainly something that I had to consider and think about and also connect to in order to play the role. Well, I, I guarantee you that this guy had charisma. Oh, and uh, you d great we deal. didn't get to show show you appealing to a crowd mm -hmm. but you really get him stirred oh yeah up. because he would you know uh, he's all like a street preacher yeah, you know yeah, he's yeah. very committed very very intelligent mm -hmm. man and very charismatic person as well and i thought those were the qualities that i yeah. saw in this character that attracted me to the character yeah. and plus he was a survivor because you know uh, during a period when things could have been very rough he had a job. He had security. He had a family. Be it what it was, there was a family there for him. A roof over his head, three square me square meals a day. So um, those kinds of things are very important survival. Yeah. And when, when we when we picture him with these uh, bumbling fools who are the, the members <laughs> yeah. of this group, he's he's really the guy who's holding them together. He's yeah. the only one that's yeah. got good sense. Yeah. Yes. And uh, what is the, the the white, the uh, American fascists and anti-Semites again have been fools, have been nuts, and I've I've talked about the uh, uh, the fascist mind and all that. It's it's like a uh, gear with teeth missing, you know. It's running just fine for a while, and then all of a sudden it skips. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it right. stops making sense, and then it starts making perfect sense again. Yeah, this is. Um the, the 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 teeth that are that are missing you sometimes wonder like what happened to them did they get did they get plucked or did they just not grow in or what you know what how how did they wind up being missing <laughs> that's that's something that i guess uh, uh everybody can bring their own interpretation to
Well, there are a lot of defective minds in the world, yeah, and you know, yeah. uh, that's just life. Is that? What my son Mark again said about uh, the Vietnam War, he was a protester, and, and uh, even though he was straight with the draft, he, he decided to become a Canadian and started a commune out in British Columbia. But he said it took him a long time to realize that these people were sick. Lyndon Johnson and and here we have McNamara making this wonderful confession you know and he expected to be loved Uh, you know the Vietnam War was a mistake and uh, he's insane yeah yeah if this isn't mental illness I don't know what is causing the deaths of so many people well this this then brings us right back to Mother Night because uh, the whole idea that this man serving his country as a spy is also um, spewing all this venom, which is believed by people all yeah. around the world. Um, it sort of comes to a head when he meets in the Israeli prison, not face to face, but Eichmann is also in, in the prison with him. And, and he has several conversations with, uh, with Eichmann. And at one point, he kind of goads Eichmann a little bit and he says... Um, uh, something to him about, uh, do, do you feel responsible for the death of, of six million? And Eichmann says, no. You know, and he says, well, what do you mean, no? You, is it, you were just taking orders? You, know, you were just a soldier? You're not responsible? And in the book, Eichmann says, how did you find out about my defense? You know, in, 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 in the film, in the film, they, they, they drop that. But in the film, Eichmann says, no, I don't I don't have to take credit for the six million. I can uh, I can afford to give you some as well. You know, at which point Campbell, you know, going, oh, geez, you know, Campbell, by the end of the film, believes that, in fact, he is this this war criminal. Well, he understands. Yes, he, he understands what he has done. been. Yeah. And, and the, the moral of the story, which is stated didactically really uh, in the movie is we are what we pretend to be so we must be careful what we pretend to be yeah. uh, but a take well take Germany for instance uh, what Germans my age are saying now who came through the war and everything that really wasn't us mm. Mm. We're the people who love children and flowers and dogs, and and uh, uh, so pe- people doing terrible things uh, are still saying, "Well, this wasn't really me." Yeah. Kurt, do you think you've referred to your age a couple of times? You're what, seventy-two, seventy-four, seventy-four. Okay, you're my mother-in-law's age. Okay. My, when my mother-in-law found out that I was going to have you on tonight, huh? she. She got more excited than I've seen her in, in years and years and well, years. Well, I like your mother-in-law, although we've never met. And you know what else? Is I've had two mothers-in-law, and I've liked both of them. Ah, good. Yeah. Good. For, for, when I first met my wife, we were 17 years old, and I was that boy for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but after a while, my mother-in-law, Rita, finally accepted me into the family. I stopped being that boy and I began to actually have a name. I became Vin. <laughs> you know, that and, uh, and we're all still together all these, uh, all all these right. many years later. I'm, as, I'm the same age as, as your son. I'm 40, mm. 48. Um, my question is, when your generation is no longer on the planet, the generation that lived through World War II, that, that fought the war, mm-hmm. is there a danger that 
we will lose sight of what really happened there. Now, there, there's, there are movements afoot that, that uh, attempt to convince the world that the Holocaust never happened, that the whole thing was just this trumped-up business, you know? Oh, I, I, that, again, there are a few people who, who, who want to believe that. I don't think it's a widespread belief yeah, at all. Yeah. Uh, and what is going to keep World War II alive is the costumes of the Nazis. <laughs> oh, isn't that interesting? Because yeah. uh, uh, dramatists are going to be attracted again and again to the opportunity of dressing their villains. And you can say what you want about the Nazis. They had the damnedest <laughs> uniforms yeah. Yeah. in the history of warfare. And so they will remain staples in show business, I think. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I mean, the Korean War is completely forgotten. Mm -hmm. And that was, incidentally, the best army we ever had, the most professional who fought in Korea. Uh, and as nearly as I can tell, Vietnam is, is pretty much forgotten. And uh, uh, television erases the past, you know. The, uh, what I had, one of my sons, an adopted son, uh, was a gag writer for TV. He was head writer on Saturday, on ABC's ripoff of uh, Saturday Night Live, mm -hmm. which was yeah. Friday's. Right. All his jokes had to be about something which had been on television right. within the last three weeks, uh, or people wouldn't know what, uh, what, 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 what was so damn funny. And uh, so there goes Korea, and there goes the First World War, which I got, my war was so much easier than that one. And... Uh, so yeah, as we have a big forgettery going now, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I, the World War II Holocaust it, uh, was not the first one, nor will it be the last. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. That's uh, what that that's what that look in in your yeah, eyes at the end of the film uh, says. But we do know. not we do not learn from history, mm -hmm. and the. Uh, what the saying, uh, uh, those who do not know history are condemned to repeat it. Well, you're, you're condemned to repeat it anyway. <laughs> Whether you know it or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Yeah. is my guest tonight. Frankie Faison, actor who appears in uh, this marvelous uh, film version, uh, adaptation uh -huh. of Mother Night, a Keith Gordon film, who plays the Black Fuhrer of Harlem. Uh, is with me also. It's kind of a surprise for you guys. Yes, because you're in the pleasant. movie together, but <laughs> very you, you, uh, you never met before. Yeah, he had lines. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's got one of the best lines in, in the film, one of the funniest lines in the film, which is after Howard has been beaten up, um, uh, Frankie is uh, one of the people taking care of him, and Frankie says, is your head hurt? And he goes, yeah, a terrible headache. And he says, here, take some aspirin. He says, most things in the world don't work. Aspirin, aspirin do. do. Aspirin <laughs> do. <laughs> Kurt, you spent... Um, sometime during World War II as a prisoner of war. Yes. You were a prisoner of war in Dresden, actually, yes. which is why you have written about that incredible event, the bombing of Dresden, uh, on any number of occasions. Um, did you see action as well prior to that? Bef I mean, before well, that's you became how you a get captured. Is, is first <laughs> you were out. Okay. Yeah, no, I was, I was uh, a PFC, an infantry mm -hmm. scout. We were battalion scouts. And so we were supposed to go out and find out what the enemy was doing and without being seen and then come back and tell what we'd seen. And uh, 
Yeah, I was in the Battle of the Bulge. My whole division was wiped out. Uh, and then we were loaded on on trains and got carted across Germany and, and uh, put anywhere they could find room for us. But under the uh, Geneva Convention, which I guess is 1913, somewhere along there, about how prisoners of war to be treated, enlisted men, uh, privates and PFCs must work for their keep is in non-coms and commissioned officers are kept out in the country in camps as a much better deal. It was much more mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. to be in a city mm-hmm. and, and to see a lot of stuff and talk to a lot of people. And so, yeah, I was sent a hundred in a work unit of a hundred. Uh, we were sent to Dresden to work, to do labor. Uh, but and, it was a great adventure. And Dresden was not a, not a military target. Can you tell the story? Because there there are people who don't know the well, story about the, the bombing of the, Dresden. Uh, it was it's a beautiful city. It was, and it was called the Florence of the Elbe, and uh, great art history there, and musical history. And uh, the Germans uh, believed that they could declare it an open city, and under military law, there really is no such thing. Uh, but they, uh, so there were no air raid shelters and there were, uh, uh, no defenses to speak of. And, uh, it was very useful to the Germans, uh, for taking care of refugees and taking care of the wounded from the, uh, Russian front. And it was also, uh, a very important railroad center. And, uh, with the war going, uh, what, it was bombed on uh, Valentine's Day in 1945 <laughs> when the war had just a few more months to go. And uh, they burned the whole city down. It was largely the Brits who did it at night uh, with incendiary bombs. It became one big column of flame. And... Uh, they they don't know how many people were there because refugees were coming in from the Russian front and all that. But the guess is that about 135,000 people were killed in one night, and that makes God. it well. That makes it the world's record massacre because that's the fastest people, a large number of people have been killed mm-hmm. in a short time. Of course, you don't compare it with Auschwitz, which is a slow industrial mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. But anyway, and I've. I wondered why the hell it was done, and people have thought about revenge as the Brits wanted revenge for Coventry and and, uh, whatever. But Freeman Dyson, who is now a distinguished physicist down at the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, uh, was a bureaucrat for the Royal Air Force when this was done, and he said it was pure bureaucratic momentum what do we do? Mm. <laughs> what do we do next? Uh, so and and so there was no c- conscious decision made uh, well, it, for it, revenge. Yeah, it, or I whatever. mean, it might as well be justified yeah, yeah, at yeah. that. Uh, in uh, in Britain, uh, in Parliament, they started uh, debating about the wisdom of burning down cities because they say, "Look, we're going to occupy these cities." <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be nice if there was central heat and the telephones worked and everything. <laughs> 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 yes, we were always leveling cities before we took them. All these years later, Kurt Vonnegut, can you close your eyes and still conjure up the visual images of that event? I can, but it it wasn't a wounding event. I was at the... When I was 22 years old, I guess, I was ready for adventure. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, I could take it, and I was fascinated, and there was a hell of a lot to see. And as I've said in speeches, if you want to understand my character, you should know about the neighborhood dogs when I was seven years old. (laughs) Yes. What about the neighborhood dogs? They were pretty nasty. Chows are bad news, and... uh, (laughs) Uh, there are some sweet dogs and all that, but no, the award, award had nothing to do with shaping my character. Yeah, it it yeah. gave me something to write about. Right. And of course, Slaughterhouse-Five, or the Children's Crusade, uh, became uh, one of uh, the pivotal novels uh, well, in, what in I, your what career. I've said about, what I've said about Slaughterhouse-Five, and I've said it everywhere in the world I've been, I've said it in Japan, I've said it in France, I've said it in Germany, and I've said it in the United States and Canada and all that is the firebombing of Dresden, where they burned down the city approximately as elegant as Paris, uh, did not cause one person to get out of a concentration camp a microsecond earlier, Mm -hmm. did not cause a single German soldier to abandon his foxhole a microsecond earlier. Only one person on the face of the earth benefited from the firebombing of Dresden. That's me. Well. I I got $5 (laughs) for every person killed. Oh, Kurt. (laughs) See, that's... That's the... That's the remarkable thing about Kurt Vonnegut Jr. That's why people... That's why people love you, is that... That that sense of humor that can make a joke out of... uh, you know, this extraordinary song. Well, talk to my wife about it, would you? Uh, there was a stage ver- version recently of Slaughterhouse-Five. Steppenwolf did it? Yes, yeah, Steppenwolf in, uh, is doing it right now. They're still doing it. Yeah. yeah, and it's a very elaborate production. Of course, they are great, is Steppenwolf. Uh, and uh, it's not a portable production. It's got a very fancy set on stage. And uh, like the book, Jumps Around in Time, is sometimes you're in the past, sometimes... Mm-hmm. In the present. Whatever. Are you pleased with it? Yes, I liked it very much. I'm sorry it can't travel. Well, maybe Tell they'll it. get some some uh, producer with big big bucks, big uh, deep pockets to bring it to New York or something. Huh? Well, I wish that would happen. Yeah. Yes. Of all of the the film and TV adaptations of your work, um, there have been a number of them over the years. Would it be safe for me to assume that you are most pleased with this film, Mother Night? I'm, well, I've. There are two. There are two novelists who ought to be grateful to Hollywood, and uh, Margaret Mitchell is the other one. <laughs> but I, I have had. <laughs> yeah, and, but they tore her house down. You know, down. Did in they? Yeah, I hadn't they heard. tore the house down. Yeah. Well, but anyway, I, uh, I think Slaughterhouse Five and and now Mother Night are both uh, very. Honorable, interesting film. Yeah, yeah. I liked Slaughterhouse Five as well. Yeah, but this film, as I said, it it connected 
um, to me on such a deep emotional level that uh, that I, f- I found myself immobilized by it after the first time I saw it. I just couldn't, I couldn't move. I mean, I, I saw Frankie later that day or the next day, and I told him about yeah, it. Yeah, you I did. S- uh, I said, I just f- found it to be an extraordinary Have film. you seen it? Yes. Yeah. Were you moved? Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I was very much moved uh-huh. by, you know, reading the screenplay originally, and uh, from that, from the very initial reading, uh-huh. it just started conversation, discussions with people that has never ended. Well, it, it so was a happy cast, too, wasn't it? It was a very happy cast. Yeah. When you work under those conditions, when everyone is coming in and sort of working because of their belief in the project, mm-hmm. it like, makes I, for a happy cast. I love it when there's no money involved. Yeah. Well, I, I, I love the projects for... that come out of it, but <laughs> my pockets are very well, empty <laughs> as a result. Frankie told me a story. Now, Frankie's a, a, a hard-working actor. He's yes. a, what are you, you're in like a half dozen films that are coming out this year yeah. alone, um, constantly working. There was a point at, at which um, it became a question whether or not he could do Mother Night because right. you were doing another film at the time, right. another film that was going to pay you a lot more money. Right. Um, tell what your, what your decision was about Well, that. actors are quite often, you know, um, challenged with this conflict of what to do, whether to do art or whether to do high commercial, you know, things that can put money in your pocket. And when I read this script, um, at the time that it came about, I was also offered another role in another film, which was uh, much more of a commercial film, which was paying a lot more money. But um, I wrestled with this thing for about three weeks, and then I just, it was a haunting effect Mother Night had on me from the initial reading, and I felt like I needed to be a part of this project. And, you know, the role I play in it is not a major role. It's not a major supporting role. It's It's a good supporting role. But it was just sometimes in your life there are projects that come along that you feel you have to be a part of. And this is the way I felt about that project. Mm-hmm. And so I told the other people that um, I couldn't, I, I, I choose Mother Night. This is the film that I'm going to do. And uh, it happened to work out because of um, Bob uh, Whitey. He, you know, he very much wanted to use me. And he also understands, you know, the actor's dilemma. He worked it out so that I could do both the films. He sort of like kept re, re, rearranging the schedule to accommodate me, and which I'm very grateful for. All right. Mm. But, uh, I mean, this film was a film that I wanted to be a part of because I think it's going to be a very important film. Yeah, it seems to be a, a real labor of love for all concerned, and that comes across on the screen. We're talking about the film version of Kurt Vonnegut Jr.'s novel, Mother Night. It's a Keith Gordon film. It stars uh, Nick Nolte. And um, Cheryl Lee, Alan Arkin, uh, John Goodman, Frankie Faison, and uh, a whole wonderful cast. It's playing at uh, two theaters here in town right now. I hope it gets a much, much wider run. I want this film to be out in all the malls, in all the 12 plexes and stuff. Well, we're getting very nice reviews, I must say. Oh, yeah. Uh, in a in a, a world where where so many movies are just m- meaningless bits of uh, of uh, demographically contrived fluff, it is so refreshing yeah. and so um, wonderfully moving to see a film like this. And uh, I thank you, Kurt Vonnegut, for giving the okay, for giving the giving the <laughs> approval. Now, w- at the very beginning of our visit tonight, Kurt, I, I mentioned the fact that you haven't written since the late. 80s, yeah. 1990. Um, yet there is rumor of uh, of a new work. Is is there? Yes. I, I, I mean, I've even heard a name, Timequake. Is yeah, it? it's called Timequake. Is I uh, I'm not. A, 
and I'm not as smart as I used to be. And I don't think it's going to be a, a a very good book. It's it's all right. It's it's just a respectable. So it's sort of coded to my career. But I mean, you know, Joe Namath isn't passing into crowds anymore. He's modeling pantyhose. <laughs> <laughs> well, part. when you when you stopped writing, quote unquote. Did you really stop writing? No, or? I write every day, you do. and you it's d- a way of it's a way of of dealing, uh, keeping a neurosis in check. Mm-hmm. It and uh, what I said in a letter to Harper's Magazine uh, uh, that the novel will never die because people are treating <laughs> their mental illness every day, and it does work. It is therapeutic. So yeah, I've written every day, and and I uh, what I've written. Uh, isn't nearly as good as what I used to write, and I'd like to end up with all flags uh, flying. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to publish a piece of crap at the end. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. But Timequake is—is uh, is it not a piece of crap? It's respectable, you say. Well, right? it's kind of what it, it's uh, B minus, which is better than I ever did in college. So. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Because you you know how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people are just aching for another Kurt Vonnegut. Well, look, I'm, I'm in print, which is, which is an unusual situation. Mm-hmm. I'm completely in print. Mm-hmm. So even when I die, God forbid, I'll go on talking. And I have said about everything I have to say. As Herman Melville, you know, talked about whalers, why they don't talk. They've said absolutely everything. <laughs> <laughs> They've said bar she blows, huh? <laughs> One more needs to be said. They've used up all their material. It, can I uh, can I recommend to all of my listeners that they go see this movie, Mother Night? It's an yeah. extraordinary film. That they then go back and uh, and read or reread the novel, as I've done. I've reread it, and and now I've got the itch again. I want to go back and. I have all my piles of Vonnegut books here. Oh. You see that. I want to go back and yes. check them all out again now because it's been a while. I thank you so much, Kurt Vonnegut Jr., for spending time with us tonight on the radio. Thank you. And uh, Frankie Faison, the Black Fuhrer of Harlem, a.k.a. Macbeth. <laughs> yes, gonna... King Duncan. I'll... <laughs> you... <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. Yes. That happened to him and happens to anybody who puts on a Nazi uniform in a play is they change. Yeah, is that true? I, 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 I'll tell you, if you can take a second to say something sure. about that. I mean, because when I first was went out to Toronto to see the wardrobe that I would be wearing in this production. As is the case in so many films that take place in New York, they're filmed in Toronto because it's yeah. cheaper to film them. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Okay, I'm sorry. But uh, And they showed me this, you know, I've seen, you know, you've seen the Nazi uniforms before and you see, you see it over there. You never see it on your body. Mm-hmm. And when I put it on and I had the full, you know, thing with the leather jacket, the boots and everything. And it, and then they presented me to a mirror. And when I looked at it and saw myself, <laughs> it was shocking. I, it was the most, it was the scariest thing that I had ever encountered in my life. Mm-hmm. It really became a thing of having to overcome the wardrobe. It because it's uh, it was too much. It was too much for me to do. I had to take it off, and gradually work my way back to it. Mm. And a lot of the actors who were involved in the project have made the same statement. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's I, I don't know. I I can't find the word to describe. The Nolte feeling. Nolte wears an extraordinary uniform. 
at, a, at the yeah. point where he leaves Berlin and goes out to the countryside to say goodbye to his in-laws. It's a uniform that in the, in the novel we find out he's actually um, designed. Um, it's a uniform for a few people like him, these Americans who are in Germany. Free America. The free, Corps, the free yeah. Americans, yeah. And it's a combination of a whole bunch of different uh, 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 real militaristic styles, and it's really a scary uniform. But well, there weren't too many actors who wanted to take their wardrobe with them usually no, in films and things. Leave them behind. Huh? But you, you know, fascism in Italy and in Germany were responses to the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And pe- people's spirits were rock bottom. And they issued uniforms and badges of rank mm-hmm. to everybody. And my, this was appreciated. What this does to... <laughs> It changes, yes, human it changes. Being. It really does. Uh, so watch out for that. If if uh, if the stock market crashes and they start passing out uniforms, <laughs> <laughs> we'll remember what we'll Kurt remember. Vonnegut told us on the radio here on this Sunday night. Yeah. Kurt, again, thanks for spending Thank time you. with us. Frankie, Love. see you on stage see in a couple of days. Of a white 